And on your way up to Thompson's apartment, you saw Amory Fallon asleep on the stairway. Why, why, I... Amory Fallon, unaccustomed to drink, had fallen asleep. He slept for 45 minutes without knowing it. But you knew it, didn't you? You were going to see Thompson because the two of you had a date to sell the perfected Martin formula to Mr. Carlos Silva of Mexico, so you didn't dare wake Fallon. All right, all right. Fallon was there asleep. I saw him. But I didn't kill Thompson. No. The killer was Thompson's accomplice. He had doctored the books. He had to then set the fire to destroy this evidence against himself. But Thompson still had the microfilm. When the killer left Thompson's apartment, he found Amory Fallon's note. He saw Amory Fallon asleep on the stairway. So he went back to the apartment. No. No, what are you talking about? The killer accidentally overheard Thompson's phone call to Vivian Ames, a phone call setting up a perfect alibi for him. So he opened the door, went in, and then he killed Ned Thompson. No, no, I didn't do those things. I didn't kill Ned Thompson. And you didn't plant Fallon's note in his no, pocket? No, no! No, Mr. Nichols. You didn't kill Thompson. But you did, Mr. Wells. Yes! Yes, I killed Ned Thompson! I killed him! Classic Perry Mason. Fell in love with Perry Mason in the first years of our marriage. My wife and I, we didn't have enough money to get cable. And so we had the local ABC, CBS, NBC affiliate, and some other no-name channels. And on one of those no-name channels, every day for a couple of hours during the lunch hour, Perry Mason was on. So I'd come home from lunch uh, early in the pastoring at the church in Rancho Cucamonga, California. I would come home for lunch and uh, I would have the sandwich and we'd sit down with soup and sandwich and Perry Mason. And I fell in love with Perry Mason and Drake and all of the other characters, Hamilton Burger even. I felt bad for the guy. I mean, never won a case as far as I saw against Perry Mason. And out of the 271 episodes that depicted Perry Mason as a defense attorney, he only lost three cases. Three cases. So his record was 268 to three. If you were accused of a crime... You would want someone like Perry Mason as your advocate, as your counselor. Now, each episode would show Mason uh, verifying the credibility of a defendant, doing some research into the details of the case, and then show Perry Mason and Hamilton Berger calling their witnesses and going back and forth, and most would end up just as you saw there in dramatic fashion of a revelation of the accused that was on the stand, really being unjustly accused, not being guilty, and someone else being revealed as the killer or the criminal. Now, imagine being brought into court on charges of having some crime against you and having someone as your advocate who had a record of 268 to three. Now, imagine more importantly, Someone who never loses and does away with every charge that has ever been brought against you. 
That's exactly what we're looking at this morning as we look at our advocate, Jesus. And as we do, we see some instruction, first of all, as we get to 1 John chapter 2 this morning. If you have your Bibles, your iPhones, or your Android phones, or your iPads, whatever you have this morning, take them and turn to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, and we see God's plan has always been that men do not sin. Men sin not. Notice the text. It says, my little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. Now, some of John's readers could have misunderstood John's insistence on man's sinfulness earlier in his writing as an admonition against personal holiness and permission to sin. Here's what is written earlier, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. John is making a point. He says, if we, have no, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So some could get in their minds because John is making the point that He's calling everybody sinners, that sin is okay. It's just and right to sin. It's just a part of our nature. We are going to sin, so we might as well sin, and we might as well sin with indulgence. He goes on to say in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, in making these statements, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wasn't condoning sin. He was making a point that unless someone can understand their guilt and their sinfulness, they cannot be saved. In fact, he also wrote these words in verse 6. He said, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now, we are either children of light, cleansed by the offering of Jesus Christ for us, or we are children of darkness. We cannot be both. Now, most people believe John ministered to the congregation at Ephesus, and that there was some doctrinal controversy there of who was and wasn't a Christian, uh, sin and sin's sinfulness, and what really marked or what differentiated true Christians. And Paul, writing at an earlier time, wrote to the same congregation using similar language, and he wrote, writes this, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord, walk as the children of light. Now children of light have received the light of the life of Jesus Christ, and the light of the life of Jesus Christ changes them. Now, understanding the context of the text, we conclude that John was writing to point out that some people in the congregation were not genuinely saved. That is why he also wrote verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you are not saved by receiving Jesus' payment on your behalf, the Bible says that you can be saved, you can confess your sins, and if you do, if you come to God and understand your guilt and your sinfulness, and you confess to God that you're a sinner, and you confess to God that you need a Savior, you can be saved by faith. That's the point that John is trying to make. Now, some believe that we only have conditional forgiveness. Some believe that when we sin, our sin blocks our fellowship with God, so we must confess our sins anew, or else God will not hear our prayers and God will not have fellowship with us. And they use 1 John 1, 9 
as a foundation for this understanding, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They believe we need to keep short sin accounts. We need to confess our sins daily. We need to confess our sins hourly. We need to keep short accounts. We need to keep short accounts because if we do not, uh, God will not have fellowship with us and he will not hear our prayers. So they say, 1 John 1, 9 is the proof text on how to maintain fellowship with God. If that were the case, as we look at the verses following verse 9 into chapter 2, why doesn't it say this? My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, does it really say, if you're looking at your Bible, does it really say this? If any man sin, we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that what it says? No. That is not what it says. But what it does say, it says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So John's encouragement here is that men sin not. Our goal isn't sinlessness because living in this body, living in this flesh, living in this world, we're never going to be sinless. But our goal, with the Holy Spirit's help, is to sin less and less and less. Now, God is not surprised by our behavior. When you lose it in the morning, when things aren't going your way, God is not surprised by your behavior. It's, I'm not condoning your behavior, nor is God. He's not surprised by it. He's God. He knows everything. He sees in advance, including when we sin. Yet in spite of this, he sent Jesus to die for the sins of his people so that there might be full and complete forgiveness. Now think about this. Such love is without extents, and such love has no bounds. Here's what it goes on to say in Romans about God's love. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul, writing to a group of people that were dealing with immense persecution, was talking to them, uh, helping them to understand that no matter what happened to them, nothing could ever separate them, separate them from God's love. Then he says, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, including ourselves, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's love knows no bounds. God's grace has no extent. In fact, God's grace is beyond our comprehension. It literally blows our mind. I love what Ephesians says about this. It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. And then it says this, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God's word tells us of his love and grace time and time and time again. In order that we might be won by it. In order that we might be enamored by it. 
and determine God giving us strength that we will not fail him, putting other things before him and choosing to sin. And so John's admonition to us is, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And then as we continue in the text, we see Jesus's purpose for us. And if any man sin, it says we have an advocate with the Father. Now, Jesus's purpose towards us is first, he is our advocate to the Father. The word advocate in the original Greek is the word parakleton, which is used only in four other places in the New Testament, and it means one who stands in our place or in our defense, one who comes alongside us. Now, in John's gospel, the word is used to describe the Holy Spirit and his ministry as a counselor or a comforter to us. In fact, John 14 says it this way, and I will pray the Father. Jesus said to the people, his disciples, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, paracleton, that he may abide with you forever. Verse 26 of John 14, but the comforter, Paracleton, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now here the word advocate has the idea of a legal term, describing Jesus as standing in our place, in our defense, coming alongside of us. Now, the work of salvation, we understand Jesus has already made it complete. If we have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that thing of salvation is completed. We're justified, we're made right in the sight of God, we're forgiven, and we're cleansed forever. And nothing can change our position because of what Jesus has done and his once-for-all payment for us. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says, Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and quickened by the Spirit. I'm going to ask Christian to come. Christian is here this morning. He's going to help me with an illustration. Christian is, are you a, a full-fledged attorney? Not yet. Not yet. You're almost there. But you can practice law. He can practice law. He's got his conditional status to practice law in the state of Arizona. Yeah. Christian's a good guy. He uh, has uh, been coming to Desert Hills for the last two years. Two years. Two years. He's grown. Um, he is uh, just going to be coming on as one of our deacons. He's going to be married in a short time as well. He's a good man, and he's an attorney. Usually you don't say those in the same sentence. <laughs> right? I asked him to wear his attorney clothes today. All right, so come on over here, Christian. Christian is representing a counselor. He's standing on behalf of someone who is accused. Now, our earthly advocates, our earthly attorneys, stand before the judge and the jury, and they make the case based upon the merits of the accused. So Christian would uh, get his case together. He would present the merits of the accused. He would say, this is why this person isn't guilty. He wasn't there. This is his character. This is what everybody says about him. It's impossible for him to be guilty. That's what most advocates, attorneys do. And then the judge or the jury give out the sentence. But here in 1 John, the merit on behalf of the accused is totally absent. The merit is on the part of the advocate. 
There's no merit on those that are accused. The merit is on the advocate. In other words, Jesus's work of redemption is complete. So what Jesus is doing, advocating on our behalf, what is he doing for us today? He's not going to the Father each time we sin to remind the Father that his payment has been applied. So what is his purpose in advocacy right now? Before Jesus went through the passion, he knew that his disciples would falter, specifically Simon Peter. And notice an interaction that he had with Peter in the Gospel of Luke. And the Lord Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So in other words, in anticipation of Peter's denial, Jesus, as the advocate, asked the Father to prevent Peter's faith from failing. And that is what Jesus does for us today. As our advocate, Jesus prays that the Father would give us strength as we're failing, as we're struggling, as we're dealing with circumstances and even sin. Now, there are three words used in our text to describe Jesus' purpose towards us. He is our advocate to the Father, and secondly, he is the righteous one. He is the righteous one. Now, it is possible that John is referring to Jesus' judicial righteousness on our behalf as spoken of in, in Romans chapter 10, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth. It's possible, but not likely. I believe the word here is not necessarily describing the legal righteousness Christ has and is, which is offered to us in salvation through the gospel, but rather the righteousness of his character, which governs his advocacy for us. Now, not all advocates or counselors are like Jesus. Not all advocates, you can say in the same sentence, are good attorneys. Now, everything I know about this young man, he is a good dude. I've spent time with him, mentoring him, discipling him, talking to him. He's a good dude. He's not perfect. He would be the first one to admit that. I'd be the first one to admit that. Not that you're perfect or not perfect, but I'm not perfect, all right? But he's a good dude. And as far as I know, this gentleman wants to do that which is right. But not all advocates, if you've ever watched any court case, are like Jesus. In fact, some of them, remember the O.J. Simpson trial? Remember, if it doesn't fit, it acquit. <laughs> Remember, uh, it, it, there's no way O.J. could have done this. Everybody's like, he's guilty of sin. And, and, but not all advocates are like Jesus. Thank you, Christian, for your help this morning. And so we understand that often attorneys, yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> he's a good dude. Often attorneys are unjust, conniving, and shady. Many times they serve their own interests rather than the interests of their client. Some use technicalities to escape the law's just penalties. But Jesus doesn't work that way. In fact, he is faithful to our cause and presents the case faithfully with perfection on our behalf. Why? Because he is the righteous one. 
And then thirdly, we see another word or phrase used to describe Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, the word propitiation has the idea of the atoning sacrifice or the turning away of the wrath of God from the sinner to a substitute. Now, in the pagan rituals of the Old Testament and New Testament era, the sacrifice, a sacrifice was a means by which a man placated an offended deity. In Christianity, it is never man who takes the initiative or makes the sacrifice. But God himself, who out of his great love for the sinner, provides a way that his own wrath against sin can be placated and satisfied. In fact, here's what 1 John chapter 4 says. It says, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son Jesus to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of his wrath for our sins. So God is not the object of propitiation because he's the subject of propitiation. In other words, God himself placates his wrath against sin so that his love may go out to embrace and fully save the sinner. Think about this. God's wrath needed to be satisfied. So God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he satisfied his own wrath on our behalf through his son. Think about that. That ought to blow your mind. And notice the text. It says, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want you to understand Jesus' gift of salvation is made available to all. To all. Not all will be saved because not all will receive him out of faith. But Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. In fact, the Bible says it this way, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And lastly, we see this morning, Jesus' passionate advocacy towards us. Notice the text. It says, my little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, Jesus is our advocate to the Father, but he's also an advocate to us. He's also an advocate to us. He is the one who stands in our place and in our defense. He is the one who comes alongside of us as we struggle with sin and the weight of its consequences. We were talking about this in the office the other day, and many cultures, in Eastern cultures, when you mess up, there's shame. And that guilt and shame stays with you the rest of your life. You never run away from it. It always identifies you. It always hangs over your head like a label, like a weight. You can never get away from it. Here in America, we mess up and people don't even think about it. (laughs) Our culture's not really conditioned that way. But in many cultures, that's not the case. Now, don't misunderstand me. If you've received forgiveness of sins by receiving Jesus' payment as your own, you are forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. But that doesn't relinquish us from the consequences we have to face from sin. 
we hurt somebody with our words, and unless we seek reconciliation, they're always going to remember them. We commit a crime, we're most likely going to have to have justice. We commit an act of a, a treachery, most likely that person that we've done so to is not going to forget it easily. But some people think when we sin, and they feel that when they sin, it injures their relationship with God. Now, God doesn't shun us or turn us away or block us, his fellowship with us, but when we sin, the weight of our offense causes guilt on our behalf and injures our ability to have an abiding relationship with the Father. Let me illustrate. We used to have a little dog. His name was Bosco James. Little Boston Terrier. It was a beautiful black and white brindle Boston Terrier. Um, he was uh, champion bred, uh, uh, AKC registered. I mean, uh, every award that uh, uh, th th this dog could have had, he would have had it uh, from his breeding. Uh, I had lay led a lady to Christ in Southern California when I was pastoring there years ago, and she got into this breeding of Boston Terriers, and I went to her house one time, and she had uh, uh, her, her sire, if you will, and uh, I think his name was like Marvin, and uh, so I went over to the house, and Marvin, as soon as the door was open, Marvin came at me like foaming at the mouth, I mean, came at me with a vengeance, just a little dog, and I'm like, what is he doing, you know? He's biting at me, and you, you know, your natural reaction is, what you want to do, but it's somebody's dog. So you're like, eh, you know, just bite up my leg a little bit, bite up my leg, you know, and I just didn't want him to bite my hand or anything like that because I start to break out. I'm allergic. And so he's going at me all little man. And then about a year later, this lady, Stephanie says, hey, I, I, I know your, your daughters have always prayed for a dog and they want a dog. And, and it wasn't that the prayer couldn't have been answered. It was mom and dad were like, uh-uh. But she said, I have this, this champion bred Boston Terrier. He's beautiful, and we want to give him to you. Would you like to pick him up? And I don't know, somehow the girls found out about it. It was like all these little eyes, little brown and blue and green eyes staring at me. Please, Daddy, please, can we get the dog? Well, Bosco had some problems. I mean, he... Needed to, I didn't know this, but 99% of the problems that people have with Boston Terriers are because they're male and they're not neutered. When you neuter them, you generally don't have any problems. But if you don't neuter them, they, most of them have attitude problems. I mean, he had some attitude. I mean, we would have guests into the home and, and like he's just moseying around the house with the kids and so on. And somebody would come to the door that wasn't a normal part of our family. And he would get all vicious, like fangs would come out. He would act like he was three times the size of what he was. And he would charge at the person. And people would look at us like, don't you train your dog? What is wrong with your dog? And we're like, we have no idea. He would escape from the house and he would try to attack neighbors. We would take him to public places, and if there was any dog that was close to his size, he wanted to throw down, and he would always lose. <laughs> we would take him on vacation, and he was just bad, bad, bad. 
So we went on vacation, and this time we didn't take the dog with us, Bosco. And we came back from being on vacation, and as soon as we opened up the door, we had somebody watching him. She, uh, uh, Stormy, who was here this morning, she would uh, let him out in the morning and let him out in the evening so he could go out and do his thing and, and uh, run and, and do all that thing. And she made sure he had food and water, and, and she did that every day while we were gone. And, and uh, we were gone for like a week and a half. We came back, and as soon as we opened the door, Bosco was like down with his head towards the ground and acting like he had done something wrong. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, what did this dumb dog do? (laughs) We're putting things away. We're trying to make sure we're getting things in order and getting acclimated back to the house. And I start to walk up the steps to the master bedroom, and I smell something. I'm like, that dumb dog did his business up here, and he was pretty well house-trained. And I went into the room, and I found out that that dumb dog did his business only in one spot in our bedroom, right next to my side of the bed (laughs) on the floor. Now, I didn't even have to, to, to know that something was wrong. I mean, he didn't tell me. He told me by his actions. As soon as the door was open, he was like, hmm, hmm, hmm. All groveling and head down and backside up and tail down and everything. I'm like, okay, he's messed up. Well, you know what? We're the same way. When we sin, we're that way with God. Head down, tail up, we deal with the weight of our shame. We deal with the weight of our guilt. And somehow in our minds, we think that God doesn't want anything to do with us. Somehow in our minds, we think God can't have anything to do with us. Somehow in our minds, we think God will never have mercy on something like this again. But I want you to understand, that's wrong. That's wrong. You see, in Jesus' advocacy, he has done something amazing for us. Here's Jesus' words again, John chapter 14. Jesus said, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. When you think of the word another, comforter, parakleton, another, just like what Jesus was. Just like what Jesus did as he stood in defense of all those people he ministered to as the scribes and Pharisees came and said, what are you doing uh, sitting with publicans and sinners? What are you doing sitting with those dirty, nasty people? What are you doing with those people who do all those terrible things? Jesus came alongside of them as a comforter, as a paracleton, standing in their defense. The Bible goes on to say in verse 26 of John 14, but the comforter, the paracleton, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, verse 26 of chapter 15, but when the comforter is come, whom I will send from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify 
of me. Notice the words, testify of me. He will testify of my words. He will testify of my work. He will testify of the familial relationship that you have as believers to the Father. And think about this. Paul, after explaining his struggle to the Romans in Romans chapter 7, remember this text where Paul writes, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For uh, what I would, that do I not. Uh, but what I hate, that do I. Did you get that? <laughs> if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. After Paul talks about his personal struggle, he goes on to explain how to get victory over the power of sin in Romans chapter 8. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. He then explains that we no longer have to be dominated by our fleshly desires because we have God's Spirit, our paraclesis, who is our advocate, who comes alongside of us when we struggle, as we struggle, who stands in our defense. And notice what it says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you do through the spirit, mortify or cut off the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, the paraclesis, they are the sons of God. Then even as we struggle, even as we're ready to give up, even when we think that God cannot show mercy on us once again, the Spirit advocates on our behalf not to cause us to run away from the Father in fear, but to run back to the Father. And it says, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, I need help. Daddy, I messed up. Daddy, I need some strength. Daddy, I need you. And to doubly assure us of our position and what Jesus has done for everyone that has received his payment as their own, the Bible says in his advocacy, the Spirit of Christ bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. Woo! <laughs> now, the devil doesn't want us to move forward, the devil doesn't want us whole. The devil doesn't want us to think well of God or our position as Christians. The devil wants to defeat us in our minds. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of God. Of Christ. Now, as we see grace and mercy in our time of need, as Hebrews 4 says, coming boldly unto the throne of grace, there is someone who is trying to interrupt us as we're getting our help from God. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12:10 that the devil will be brought under heel at a future time. But right now he is accusing the brethren, and he's accusing them before the very throne that we go to to get help in our time of need. 
And so as we're going to that throne to get help from God in our time of need, the devil and his minions are hanging out around the throne, accusing us day and night, Revelation 12, 10. But as the devil accuses us and as we face the harsh criticism and unforgiveness of others, and as we deal with the battles we have in our own souls over guilt and shame, the words of Jesus remind us of his advocacy. He reminds us that he stands in our defense. They remind us of what his position is to us. And here's what it says. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us all things? And then it says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that accuses and has anything to stand upon? Remember, our advocacy is not based on our merits. Our advocacy is based on our advocate. What Jesus has done for us, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of the throne of God, who also maketh intercession for us. His word reminds us that every condemning, every guilty thought that inhibits us from moving forward in our Christian lives and keeps us down, keeps us from going to the Father, keeps us from truly getting victory, every one of those thoughts are neutered. Because as Romans 8 says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is found in verse 39, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I ask you this morning, what has been keeping you from going to the Father? Do you understand Jesus' advocacy to the Father? Praying that we fail not? Do you understand now Jesus' advocacy to us? Do you understand that God, because of Jesus and what Jesus has done, wants us to be so, so enamored with his love and grace that when given a choice, we choose him as opposed to sin? Heavenly Father, we thank you.